Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined every Tuesday and Friday by Daniel Foch. And today, we're getting really out of character here, Dan. We're going to be covering a report. No way. Something we've never done on this show Literally before. Never. <laughs> that's uh, it's something we like doing because there's a lot of amazing research that's that's put out. This one in particular was done by Ernst and Young for CMHC, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that uh, that you, our lovely listeners, probably don't have the time to go and read all these lengthy reports. So that's what we're here for. This is a 32-page report prepared prepared and researched and written for CMHC by Ernst & Young. The study is based off of desktop research, interviews with rental housing developers, and an anonymous survey of rental housing developers as well. And it's titled Canadian Rental Housing, the Economics of New Development in 2023 Rental Housing Supply bit of a mouthful there, eh, Dan? Yeah, certainly. These uh, institutions know how to make them lengthy. Uh, the, I, I, there's a joke in here later because there's several titles and subtitles and everything. And, you know, you and I have to title a lot of stuff on a weekly basis. And I'll tell you right now, I think we do a bit of a better job than some of these guys that put out these reports with these like two sentence long titles. But I'm just pumping our own tires. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so from the introduction of the report, it says over the last decade, Housing affordability has become one of the most critical issues facing Canadians. Uh, we all know that, obviously. Um, as CMHC notes in their June 2022 housing supply shortages study, there have been a multitude of reports on Canadian Canada's housing system over the last few years. Government panels have been uh, have been struck, and the answer is now clear: we need more housing supply. Purpose-built rental housing is a core building block required to achieve CMHC's aspiration of a home for every Canadian by 2030 that is both affordable and meets their needs. Seems like an ambitious goal by 2030, especially given, I think, population growth figures came out yesterday. And yeah, we, um, we gained like another half million people. Yeah, 430,000 people in, in a quarter. And the majority Crazy. of it is non-permanent residents. So that, that whole, um, we've been talking about it a lot on here, but the whole student the international student issue that's kind of perpetuating is is still there so a lot of students being brought into these sort of like colleges that aren't giving them good enough degree quality degrees for um them to qualify for the pr status and then and and we'll cover this next time we get to the news episode but um basically the government said that they're going to come up with a system to make sure that they're able to give people pr who who are in that non-permanent residence stream. So it's, it seems like they've realized that the PR, per, permanent residence uh, immigration, that's actual immigration system is kind of tapped out on the growth side. It's hard to continue to attract people. And so they're looking to that NPR category. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The report goes on to say that attainable housing is a critical form of infrastructure required for successful growing uh, of urban economies and purpose-built rentals provide stable housing for many essential workers, including teachers, nurses, and tradespeople, transitional occupants, such as students and new immigrants, which they have 
well, there's quite a few of them. And seniors, again, we are in the midst of a very aging population as the baby boomer, the biggest generation that owns trillions of dollars worth of real estate is kind of on their way out of the workforce and maybe settling into the kind of their golden years. And then, of course, us slowly young professionals. Adequate supply of rental housing is critical for many segments of the population. I would say it's probably for most of the population. Now, just a reminder, because we're going to be talking a lot about purpose-built rentals. Purpose-built rentals are developments made with no, with the intention of renting the individual apartments out instead of selling the condo. So unlike the condo where a lot of them are pre-sold and, and that's how you make your money, these developers develop with the intention of holding the building and all of the units and renting them out. And it's usually a corporation is kind of usually acting as the, the landlord there on behalf of, of the builder. Yeah, so the, and it is... um when we look at purpose-built rental, we talk a lot about like MLI select financing on that. Oh, this, that comes up a couple of times in here. <laughs> yeah. So, cause I mean, that's probably the primary way that the government is incentivizing the construction of this. And we are seeing a big increase in purpose-built rental housing starts right now. So, and we're also working on a full episode on purpose-built rentals. So stay tuned for that. We're going to look at the history of them, like the MERB program and whether or not we're kind of headed in that direction. So this report goes into a ton of detail. They've summarized it into a couple of main categories. And we're going to read some of the points and summaries uh, and then just chat on those. So number one, short-term response to market conditions will worsen a long-term structural housing supply challenge. So Another banger of a title. There. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> so this essentially means that reactionary behavior seen in the development community will have a lasting impact. And this is because the development process is is a long one, right? It takes a long, it's a long supply chain and it's not super responsive or adaptive to changes in the market. And then... When a developer submits a proposal to the city, it can take years before the proposal is approved by the municipality and then goes to construction. Yeah, I mean, if you look back, even in a survey found back in 2020 on the development approval process, periods show that projects can take 20 to 24 months to be approved by the city. This is because before a condominium is built, it goes through an in-depth review by the municipality, including city staff, city council, and other public agencies. And that timeline doesn't even fully include building permits, which can take, you know, multi multiple years for like like markets like Toronto and Vancouver. And then again, as you said, you got to still build the thing as well. So, uh, you know, it 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 goes it goes on, and and that's one of the main things that that we're battling here. For sure. And then you have to actually build it. So, and that's a lengthy process, especially when you, when you consider, um, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the new supply that's being created is, is high rise supply and high rise takes years and years to build. Right? Yeah. And then, well, especially if you're building downtown, I mean, you know, in, in any downtown, whether it be Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, think about the logistics that go into some of this stuff, right? Erecting a crane in the middle of a busy intersection, getting concrete pump trucks in the middle of a busy intersection, closing down roads. Like it's a, you know, and there's the amount of workers, the amount of different types of labor needed on each one of these sites. Like you've got small villages building these things, right? So there's, there's a lot of infrastructure. Uh, the report goes on to say that developers today are responding to a perfect storm over the last three years in Canada. Construction costs are up by 50, over 50%. 
and conventional lending rates have more than doubled and government fees in markets such as Vancouver and Toronto have increased to over 25% of construction budget costs. And this is all despite an exceedingly strong uh, market demand uh, for rental housing and super low vacancy rates. So again, Dan, you know, we've talked about this a ton of times. All the numbers seem to be moving in the wrong way. Construction costs up over 50%. You know, it's hard to make anything pencil at that point. Yeah, I mean, it really has created the perfect storm for supply to not be created for for developers to not be incentivized to to create supply. And I mean, the really that it seems like the way that they're attacking it is by making debt cheaper with the MLI Select program. But I mean, I think that when we talk about structural problems with this with this um, housing shortage, you know, the structural problems are embedded inflation right these these things lack of that, labor yeah and and yeah and lack of labor is a great example i mean i think the bank during the bank of canada's most recent presser they asked the question twice because it was like and the journalist sort of tried to ask a leading question to to the central banker but you know of of 1.2 million people who um migrated to canada last year through the non-permanent residence or permanent residence streams they said what how many of them um became entered into the construction trade and do you know what the number was no but we didn't we touch a little bit on this in another episode yeah, I think and it was, was like it, it it was very very low right it was 455 it's, people okay one, i yeah. was i was gonna say a, like a, a some kind of percentage but that yeah, would so, be zero point something percent that's ridiculous yeah so 455 people of the 1.2 million that came to canada <laughs> are working in in construction and so yeah, I mean, you've got a, a labor force, or sorry, you've got a, a population that is the the growth is just purely demand side. It's yeah. not supply side, and so this is. I mean, this is where you kind of get further into those embedded stru- structural challenges. So, anyway, the this survey results that they they get from talking to people in the industry, it, it seems like there's a bit of conservatism among developers who are holding projects longer and often wouldn't be motivated to undertake new construction without uh, favorable incentives or financing. And and right now we're seeing that like pre-construction, if you just look at the largest market in the country in Toronto, drop from like, their pre-sales for pre-construction will drop from like 30,000 to 10,000 units, right? So... Yeah, and you've also seen that like a pronounced shift in the availability and cost of financing. The respondents to the survey noted that over 60% identified the current market as, quote unquote, very difficult from a financing side of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. It's like that's a pretty pretty good way of describing it. And, have, and historically, availability and cost of capital was perceived as not difficult by fifty percent of the respondents. Right. So, so which is true. Like that's what. Then that was like that for just regular investors too. Right. Yeah. It was I mean, easy the last to get debt. Twenty years. Yeah. Go take a mortgage. Go yeah. build something. Right. And I mean, to see fifty percent of the people be like, yeah, you know, historically it never was a problem, and now sixty percent saying. Not only is it a problem, it's it's very difficult. And we'll get as we get deeper into the report here, we'll start to see more of the repercussions of, of some of these things. So, you know, it, it's it's tough because you look at some of these things, especially in, in some of the major markets that really need it, and you're like, how is anything supposed to be penciling out? And uh, I've got some points here I want to discuss in, but maybe this is better to to kind of keep it till the end because I want to talk about what some of the developers because we work with a lot of developers right at Land Bank. That's what we do. We help people get financing to build projects across the country. So 
we know some things like what's working where and uh and and what the developers are saying to us but why don't we keep going through the report here and then and then we can kind of have that general discussion after we've gone through all this yeah for sure Okay, so let's move on to the second summarized section of the study and look at the survey results for this one. This section is titled Acknowledging Opportunities for Scaled Solutions Impact of Large-Scale Rental Housing Developers. This is from the survey. Uh, the majority of purpose-built rental projects are owned and developers by the private sector and developers will only proceed when they will meet investor profit targets. Unlike condominium projects, the construction of rental housing requires the entire cost of the project to be financed up front. Deposits from unit presales are not applicable. This may limit potential market participation to more well-capitalized developers, the firms that play the outsized role in the construction of rental housing. So what they're referring to here is the debt that you need to build a condo versus a purpose-built rental. Obviously, I think um, Oak Bank and uh, Ground Up Development did like a really good visual on it that was circulating on LinkedIn. I think I posted it on Twitter, but it was like, I mean, I think it's like developers would consider it that if you're building for sale as like a condo builder, you you can collect deposits from those condo investors and use those as part of your capital stack. So part of your equity and your capital stack. And yeah. so you need a lot less equity. So if you're building purpose-built rental, you need something like 30, 35% is sort of what you people are considering in the market. Whereas if you're building a condo, you need like 10% right. equi- total equity in the project. And when you're talking about hundred plus million dollar projects. That adds up. Yeah. And and honestly, it's worth think, uh, just really understanding the mechanics of this, even for our smaller cap listeners, because it's going to be the same thing. Like, you know, if you were building something with the objective of selling it, you get to liquidate all of that. If you're building something with the objective of holding it, you really have to be more considerate about where that equity and how and how 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 to create staying power in that equity. MLI is probably one of the best ways that people do it by spreading out. And and it's like I love the program. I think it's great. You and I, you know, I mean, you're doing a lot of deals in that in that stream. But I think it's also, it's really just an amortization play, right? Like yeah. it's, you almost overpay for or over lever the asset, put to like more debt than you necessarily need on it and then spread that out over 50 years. As long as it can go. Yeah. And so it's almost like socializing the problem. And I always talk about socialization of these problems, but you're, you're like socializing it in such that you're putting the burden of that on the developers who have to amortize this loan mm-hmm. over time, but also on the, on the, Canadian financial system because now you've created like 50 year that all the bonding. bonds are attached yeah. to yeah exactly and so it's it is a fascinating yeah. issue no I mean that I, I want to just pause before we keep going because I think you just brought up a really good point right like I love the comparisons of okay like what you know a hundred unit condo versus a hundred unit purpose-built rental let's dumb that down for the small cap right let's put that in a, a single family home that you buy with the intention of flipping versus a single family home that you buy with the intention of duplexing and holding, right? The duplexing and holding, you're going to need more capital. And in in a lot of cases, that'll just be a bit more cost intensive because you're not going to get your, all your money back out. Whereas developers, right? They, they build, they cash out, they move on, build, cash out, move on. Whereas with purpose-built rentals, you build you don't really have that huge cash out big money moment, but you hold that asset for, for quite some time. So, you know, again, dumbing it down for the smaller cap guys, I think that's that's a relative way to look at it. Yeah. And then so for, for condo and uh, single family homes, you'll sell them typically before 
they're built through the pre-construction process, which most people are familiar with in the country. Um, and we actually did a full episode on it with Jordan Skrinko, uh, the pre-con Don. Yes. Who, he said we gave him that title. We did. I, did gave, him, yeah, yeah, I gave him that title. That. Yeah, and now yeah. that's like his like moniker. Like it, it's a good that name. Goes, yeah. That is a good name. Yeah. That's, a, that's probably the peak Nick Hill original. <laughs> you might as well just retire now. He's an expert in the space, obviously. I think it was episode 90. It is episode 90. Yeah. You were kind enough to put it in the notes here for well, me. Well, whenever we try to reference that. episodes, we're just like, uh, there's a lot of episodes now. Well, and especially uh, like right now, referencing, because I think, you know, January, it's like everybody's going back to the gym and new year, new me, getting into real estate investing. So they're going to be, <laughs> this is when we get our, our big boost of listeners, by the way. So people going back to, we try and promote our back catalog. Yeah. So if you're, if you're just joining us, thank you. And if you've been here for a while, thank you very much yes. for being here for a while. Yes. For if all this of our is new, new year, new you, we're here for it. Yeah. But for all of our, our new listeners, um, go back and listen to the whole thing, especially like some of the, we were, we had some good takes like a year ago, like some pretty good predictions. We should, like, we should like, do like a episode recap and then like, a. Uh, like a like 2023 recap and like 2024 new year new everybody come join us I'm kind of episode yeah it's a great idea. I just did that with Mark Morris for his crystal ball session actually nice. should, yeah so we could uh, that and that, that was really good actually I wish I got better quality auto we could, audio we could have just put it right in here but yeah. but yeah so that that episode's about can you make money in pre-construction investing the answer is maybe <laughs> by the way so <laughs> it's worth, li- it's worth listening to I mean look man people are still yeah it's true it is true like I think I feel like that ship has kind of sailed but there are I think that it's right now it's like you can't ju- it's not a rising tide lifts all boats market no. anymore right no. the tide's going out yeah. I mean and it's, there's still some boats that'll yeah. work but now the tide's going out and we're seeing who's swimming naked. I think that that's kind of like the, the the shift that's happening right now. So go check out that episode and we do a full exploration on it. And then um, anyway, throw us back into the report here. Yeah, so let's keep going. Here's a few key findings from this this next section of the report here. Given today's market environment, smaller, less capitalized developers are more likely to pause projects under a quote-unquote wait-and-see approach and to avoid exposure to the higher cost of debt. I mean, this is this is glaringly obvious no matter where you look at and it's not it's funny, it's not even just the the smaller, less capitalized guys that, that we've been seeing. It's it's also the the very big guys that are just like, hey, too risky, too expensive, don't need to do it right now. So I think you've seen this sentiment kind of across the board. Now again, this is a survey so the findings will be will be varied a little bit, but from Dan and I, I mean, Dan, you, you know, we're we're so on the street, so to speak, with this kind of stuff, and like we've talked to a lot of people, and yeah, I mean, the the essentially the higher cost of of debt is is pushing a lot of people into that wait and see approach. Yeah, I mean, there isn't really another option. To no, be honest, like there's yeah, there's just no other way of putting it. That's yeah. just it, right? It's and and the market ends up suffering. It like it it is wild because. You know, a lot of people, I think the sentiment has kind of gone away, but a lot of people are like, oh, population's growing at such a rate. And so house prices are going to go up. It's like, well, we also need to realize that population is growing at that rate because like 70% of that growth comes from non-permanent residents. You'll recall that the federal government banned anyone who didn't have permanent residency from buying houses. And so that population growth is purely rental demand. Yeah. Like they're not even allowed to buy houses, which is not even to say that they can't, they, they aren't allowed, which is why like the rhetoric that we've started to see over the past, you know, year. And then really in the past six months, it's kind of been like, you know, purpose-built rentals weren't really a thing for a long, long time. Now it's, now it's the new buzzword. Yeah. Well, and I think that the government's realizing that the 
private sector needs to be tasked to solve the problem because the public sector is only capable of exacerbating the problem at this point. Well, let's just look at the Eglinton LRT for his example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Let's look at the Eglinton LRT versus the 407 highway. Okay, public versus private (laughs) transportation. There you go. Case closed. So 120,000 units were identified in the pipeline by survey respondents. Um, Developers of scale, so 100, or sorry, 1,000 plus units, uh, were over 50% of the yield that was coming from developers here. Um, And that was 90% of respondents who indicated a focus on leveraging public sector financing. So the CMHC stuff. And, And honestly, a lot of it, like, look, you and I know this. And and if anyone from CMHC is listening, you know maybe worth so. maybe worth advertising on our show, perhaps. <laughs> but but honestly, because um, I think it's a really good, like it's a really good thing to to understand that you're calling people in the market who haven't even heard of this program. Guys who own hundreds of units, the guys who own thousands of units, they know because it's their job to know, and they're it's their job to be on the cutting edge and find every advantage. Yeah. Right. And so it's just fascinating to me it, that like it, it it's is, an awareness yeah. exercise yeah. 90% of the time when you're calling someone asking them if they want to do CMHC debt and they're like, no, like I'm not, I don't, it's like, I don't need a primary residence. Yeah. It's like, the what? Government or, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, just, you know, just so funny, just like with most great things, right. And I mean, Dan, you and I do this with the podcast, for instance, it's like, Hey, we are literally putting out hours of free information here heavily researched free information how do we grow this right we're doing something great here how do we get this in front of more people and just like with everything it's like it's an exercise in education right so it's it's funny to see so that's a great segue into the next section here dan where things get a little more interesting lots of chatter from the development and investing communities for better debt products and more incentives for getting these projects done Da, da, da. Enter CMHC to the conversation. This next section, name CMHC in the title. The importance of CMHC programs. High-level recommendations from industry that may be considered. Again, funny titles, but uh, let's, let's go. The peak 1970s period of rental construction was possible with federal tax subsidies and the Canadian Rental Supply Plan. A similar coordinated plan design is needed today. Several industry-informed solutions at the federal level may be led by CMHC, aligning housing supply, economic growth, and affordability outcomes. So the report goes on to say the least expensive option for affordable housing often may already exist today. Supportive financing programs are needed to preserve rental housing when nonprofits, cooperatives, and community land trusts acquire existing rental housing with in-place below-market rents. This could indirectly increase housing supply if coupled with reinvestment of proceeds into new rental housing construction by the seller. Now, Dan, this goes directly to your point that over 50, just over 50% of survey respondents have used MLI financing programs. So you're right. People don't know about this. Like, and, and, you know, it makes my job a hell of a lot easier at Land Bank because I just have to call and essentially tell small mid cap developers, you know, mid to large cap developers in some cases, hey, by the way, uh, you can get 50 year amortizations on, on your, on your product. You know, uh, a bunch of our clients are doing it right now. Look at, you know, look what this guy 10 kilometers away is doing with his site. You know, it's the best product out there. You know, they've gamified it. Like it's a, it's a fun 
product to be able to talk about and explain. And we've done one episode on, I think it was uh, episode 78, where we go back and do, we did a full episode on MLI Select. I think it's called How to Get a 95% Mortgage on Multifamily. Uh, but we're also working on a new episode and we'll likely have one of the guys from from Land Bank come on to to kind of discuss it and, and really go through some of the details. And actually, one of the guys on our team has, has built out a bit of a little proprietary model that that is just incredible for for punching in and and kind of playing with the different numbers that you that you can on uh on an mli select project yeah it's funny i well you know this and and um i i was approached by somebody in the industry who's doing an application for cmhc's um they had the housing accelerator uh fund or something something like that it was an innovation program that that closed um on the 18th and they were looking for a model that like like that without going too much into obviously like what what they were working on but um very very hard to get that proprietary thing like most of these brokers i mean i called a couple of brokers in the space just to see if anybody wanted to kind of play ball and help with the project and whatever and they all keep it very tight to their chest because i think that that's kind of the the secret sauce you might say like it it really is one of those things where you got to go through the broker community the broker channel and work with someone who has experience doing these deals because yeah. there are like incremental changes you can make to your application to really increase the output. And, and honestly, CMHC's goal is to put money back in the hands of developers so that they keep repeating the process. It's finally time to incentivize development again. And, and you know, the thing about secret sauce is they're, they're delicious, but they're they're secret for a reason. Yeah, Big right? Mac. Give me some of that Big Mac. Hey, look at KFC or look. I mean, look at my Nona. Like her pasta sauce. You know, she didn't even she didn't even fully know what it was. But her her pasta sauce yeah. was different than the next Nona. Yeah, but they're all secret sauces. Yeah. So we and, and um, one of the things I think that we're gonna do on on a subsequent episode when we get when we dive in a little bit more on MLI Select is because a lot of this stuff is available publicly, by the way. So there's. A table that shows like how you would calculate the afford rental affordability component based on accessibility. Income. Yeah, yeah, but well, the the affordability ones especially interesting because it just, they they literally have a table based on like which city and like what the rent would have to be. And we've seen a lot of people having a lot of success in markets. I, I won't name them yet because we're going to do it in a subsequent yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but where the local income is really high and the rents aren't that high yet. So, you know, a certain market where, you know, uh, what would be considered an affordable unit would be like 1700 bucks based on the income and you can rent a basement apartment for like 1500 bucks. And so you qualify right away off, off of affordability. And so one of the things that I think could, that we could do to help people, cause a lot of those markets are more affordable, but to help people really capitalize on this program is illustrate which markets are the most likely to, to be successful in an affordability basis. And so that's one of the, the kind of research programs that I want to do for yeah. an episode moving into Q1 of next year. Yeah, so we also get a lot of requests for MLI content from some of the people in the course and the community. So uh, realist.ca is what I'm referring to, by the way. And we're working on a lot more of it for Realist. And, and our land bank team will be sort of the experts in the community answering all of the questions in there on how to be successful on on MLI Select. And, and it doesn't, like, it's not massive. I mean, we spoke to a, a listener yesterday who's going to be joining the community who, you know, he's been doing triplexes exceptionally well. Yeah. And he's saying, oh, everyone's saying I should go get a 20 unit building. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to be a 20. You can do a five and you can get MLI yeah. select. Right. And yeah. no, and honestly, there's more expert operators like these thousand plus unit guys that are already tapping into the MLI select program. Mm-hmm. 
if we're just talking about purely competitiveness then and, and competitiveness of the assets too, then there are guys, there's not a lot of guys doing it in five, six, 10 unit buildings. And so I think that there really is a big advantage yep. for smaller operators. And I just said to him, I'm like, all you're doing is rather than multiple, putting a zero at the end of your scale, going from three to 30 units, why not just double your scale for the first one and see. Bigger you, is not always yeah, better can in, you do, in real estate. Can you burr? one sixplex per year rather than two triplexes per year and so anyway and so yeah i mean that's that's one of the big i think that's probably the big focus i think that's going to be the game changer in the in the canadian real estate market next year i mean if you look at multifamily the entire the entire market's being propped up by mli select realistically yeah so the report goes on to say when stacked with other financing or financial incentives adjusting program design considerations could make returns with mixed income rental under mli equally or more advantageous to market construction with higher cost conventional financing in certain contexts. So affordability thresholds, increasing debt service coverage ratios, and or reducing fees. This could center industry participants around financially prudent understanding of building mixed income rental under MLI Select as the logical option for future projects. And I think... I feel like the guys on on the land bank team were talking about this the other day. There was like, I think the environmental component is gradually going to become less and less of a consideration as building code just moves into the market and everything ends up being more with, environmental yeah, current yeah, code. Yeah, and you'll really start to see more focus on on the mixed income, which is what they're talking about here. Because you have to have a certain percentage that is in yeah. that affordability threshold. Yeah, so it's it, it's broken into three, accessibility, affordability, and environmental. And, and kind of, again, early on, we're, this is a bit of a prediction here, but we are seeing the likelihood that affordability will really be the leading factor. And, and likely those other ones will kind of, go by the wayside it could take another year or two or three but uh i mean affordability is that's what this is all about right okay so this next part is good as well these seem like they could have some real impactful changes if made so a federal directive empowering all levels of government to address the challenges specific to the construction of purpose-built rentals could explore things such as working with municipalities and provinces on solutions to finance upfront infrastructure that could accelerate development and reduce initial costs on the builder. So reducing startup costs. That sounds like a pretty solid step in the right direction. Dan, what's the next one here? The next one is assessing new and or expanded options to waive, defer, or extend or lower PST and GST financing, which... And then they go on to say development charges for all units in mixed income projects in certain contexts. And I think we already saw the GST thing happen. We are starting to see the PST provincial, like so in Ontario, HST, they they said they were going to do it and then they haven't yet. So, but I mean. Uh, This doesn't sound like them. Yeah. And and (laughs) the development charges one is really fascinating from my perspective because I've just been saying this for a while and I'm surprised. This is like, it doesn't surprise me actually that governments are not quick to, to get there, but it's an opportunity for for municipalities to like to massively outcompete each other to attract development jobs future tax base i I think i think they'll get there that you just need the early adopters well once one does it and like everybody flocks there then it it becomes a chain reaction of people jumping into that just like we've seen legislation with adding units right like toronto did it then hamilton then vancouver now we're starting to see things in calgary do go the same way by the way I, i will say that and I, and I I try not to like pat ourselves on the back too much but uh, we'll take a little early on in this show 
we said, give it like a couple years and every municipality will be up zoning. That's the direction things are going. And damn, did we get that one right? Crystal ball? Do they exist? Yeah, no, I got one when I got my realtor license. (laughs) They gave me a crystal ball. The next one here uh, of good points that they could actually have uh, meaningful changes, and that's not the official title. That's the title that I gave it. (laughs) Leveraging land use policy to prioritize and or designate areas for rental housing, type population targets to time population targets to development timelines and prioritizing financial approval processes. Next is tying incremental funding, uh, incremental federal funding to depth and duration of affordability targets, density, level, and speed of approval objectives to promote alignment with municipalities and provinces. That's a, a pretty wordy one, like when you say it out loud. So, but we've seen this one taking place. So, the Fed basically bribing municipalities to upzone and um, and upzone quickly, because uh, again, it's it's all about speed here. Because well election cycles and stuff like that. Oh, and, yeah. and when, well, if you go, if you rewind all the way to the beginning of this episode where you were talking about how long it takes to build housing, it's like, these guys are so far behind. If they want to, if they want to be able to deliver, like they have, they've put a ton of wins on the board. I will give the current administration, like as soon as that poll came out, like it was like, it was literally housing is not a federal responsibility absolutely eating it in the polls and then right afterwards legislation policy legislation housing is the primary federal responsibility after that i'm sorry what else is happening in canada that that is that needs more attention than nothing where people live (laughs) nothing but like that's how literally like that's that's a good place to start right then we can start fixing the other issues because there are other issues of course but yeah i mean look dan that that list of four things right there put together again by the the good consultants at uh, ernst and young that wasn't like those four points were were real. Those are real points, right? Like speed up processes, get better financing, remove stuff like development charges and and taxes. Look at land differently and and zoning and up zoning. So we're now moving on to the fourth and final section. Again, I'd, I encourage everyone to go in and you have to download this. Uh, we'll put a link to to the website where you can download it in the show notes. This again, 32 pages of a lot of really good high level information here, charts, graphs, et cetera. Dana and I'll probably both likely make some, some shorter form content on it, but uh, let's, let's keep it going here. The fourth and final piece here reads, uh, and this one's titled the importance of CMHC programs, high level recommendations from industry that may be considered. Again, not a podcast title, but a title nonetheless, uh, it reads exploring additional new rental supply financing that is no longer that is longer term and tied to Bank of Canada rates, an approach commonly understood to active developers and partners. This could be achieved through allocation of community or social infrastructure funding, issuing affordable housing bonds or buying down rates offered through affordable housing funds created by banks and credit unions. So again, calling for new credit products to be created, which we have, I'm working on another episode, Dan, right now uh, about the wartime housing. So just a little bit of a teaser for that one. And, and I think that there are going to be some new credit products from banks, from credit unions, from insurance companies, if we do start to see some of this stuff come to fruition. So interesting times ahead. Yeah. And I I think this one's interesting when we talk about uh, the comments that that uh, Charles at Landbank made about more in um, 
heading towards just purely the affordable basis is this this next line from the report here. So it says many provincial and federal housing programs aim to increase the supply of homes that are affordable, accessible, and sustainable. So all of those at the same time. And while those are important, meeting those accessibility and environmental requirements adds substantial costs to new housing and redevelopment. So working with other orders of government and aligning affordable housing program requirements with those other uh, with those other providers may enable affordable housing delivery across the country at a greater scale, granting CMHC with greater f- flexibility. So this might include a federal program deferring to provincial and or municipal building and environmental codes and streamline underwriting for projects funded by provincial funding and CMHC programs. And finally, CMHC granting conditional approval for projects under review for rezoning and in some cases actively sponsoring such applications. Wow, that is, again, a big step forward, right? Just throws me back to when I wanted to go pro in snowboarding and just looking for sponsors. <laughs> what do you mean? Those We're still sp- always looking for sponsors. Sponsor me videos. Sponsor this podcast if you're a big, rich corporation out there. We'll yeah, do it. that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I don't really have much else to say, Dan. I, I think that, you know, you and I read probably on most of the stuff, almost all the stuff that's put out by CMHC. Again, I, I think this was, as far as reports and studies and surveys go, I had a really good time going through this one. Lots of good information here. And and it seems like some more, like things are getting real now, right? Like the problem is too real to ignore. The proverbial can kicking down the road has been kicked so far. It's now so big, you can't really kick it anymore. So it seems like some of the stuff that we've been talking about, some of the stuff that some of the thought leaders in the real estate space and, and the lending space have been talking about for a long time are, are being noticed and recognized by government and, and put into written word. And the next step after that is to be put into written word and legislation and to be acted upon. So I'm I'm very excited to see what happens in 2024 and 2025 with, with these suggestions, with CMHC programs, with new lending products and, and all that good stuff. Couldn't agree more. Thank you for everyone taking a listen. Um, I I think this is between Christmas and New Year. This one coming out. So. Yeah, happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, Merry Christmas. Spend happy some time New Year. with the family. Yeah, enjoy, yeah, hope you're enjoying some uh, family time and uh, some time to recharge the old batteries. Because I, while I do not think that the market will be a ripping bull run like everyone is saying, I do think that the spring will be a very opportune market for people who are looking to invest in real estate. I think that we're seeing the tide going out, the swimming naked moment for the market right now, and I think that this is the market where you're starting to be able to buy good deals. And if, if the rate environment beca- continues to become favorable for that, I, I could see that next year will be a good year for, for people who are listening to this podcast. It is interesting because I think that it seems like, like our numbers are kind of, they plat- they tend to plateau every now and then and then they grow. But I'm wondering if like the plateauing is taking place because people are not interested in real estate investing anymore, <laughs> yeah. honestly. It's usually seasonal. And in my head, I'm yeah. like, no, it's just seasonal. But yeah, like I, I, hey, I thought that too. I'm like, people are just sick and tired of hearing about real estate. But I'm hoping it's quite the opposite. Yeah. So on that note, if you are somebody who wants to invest in real estate and wants to learn more and kind of take it to the next level, we do have a great course and community program that we've been working on and we're really proud of. And it's um, more and more listeners jumping into it. It's really awesome. So check that out at realist.ca. Probably too late for you to get Christmas sweaters. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll try and we'll try and do a, another cool merch drop. Yeah. I, I, a lot of people have been asking me to get these like dead co hats and um, the, so Patrick, our merch guy, the printers won't print these hats that have like we other company logos rogue. on them. 
So, so, so I've started one. No, I have. Star- so I've started one, and I've I figured out how to kind of sneak it by because, like, I guess a lot of these like bankrupt companies still own the the rights copyrights to, to the logo logos, or whatever. Probably. Yeah. So some of them just get shut down, I guess, by like a- their AI that sees the the logo. So if you exclude the word, um, then it it seems to kind of scrape by. But anyway, we'll work on trying to get some dead co dad hats yeah. going, and uh, and then meetups. Come see us. Se- yeah, second yeah. Tuesday in January. I want to say it's the ninth because like January is really early. So I think that's going to be, those are pro- they'll probably be a smaller one, but we had tons of meetups going on, like tons. Like there's yeah. like 13, 14 cities now, coast there's, to coast. They're grow- all growing. You, you and I have calls we- booked with some new people that are trying to start um, yeah. new places as well. Yeah, so- We'll put the, the link in the show notes. It is a meetup.com uh, link in the show notes because the domain forwarding didn't work super well. For If you just type it into your browser, you can get realestatemeetups.ca. But the link in the show notes, you'll see it. If you just, it's it's um it's a meetup.com link. We're going to start putting them on um, uh, Eventbrite as well to try and grow them a little bit. And um, should we tease like what that all is kind of trying to feed into? We'll do we'll do a little tease. Yeah. So our goal for this is is really like we want people who want to go out to events to have something to to look forward to. And other than the course and community that we've been requested, like we really really listen to our audience. Like trust me, Nick and I didn't want to do a course. Like no. well, the last thing we wanted, and and not that we like we love it, but like it's actually been it's been yeah, amazing. Like it's, it's probably yeah. like it. It's one of my favorite things now. Of like things that I've done in my life, it feels like the closest to like a calling that I have, honestly. Yeah. But the guruness of the industry has really dissuaded me from <laughs> yeah. wanting to go oh, that route. So, man. but anyway, we really, really listened to the audience, and the audience asked us to do a community and a course, and so we did it. And then the other most requested thing is like, "Hey, how are you guys going to do like a big annual summit?" And the answer is yes. And the that's answer it. is yes. Okay, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. See you later. To be continued. <laughs> The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.